the preaching of God's Word then is found in the book of Ezra, and particularly chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We mentioned last week of a series of uh, diverse setbacks and afflictions that came to the people of God, and before us particularly is that which extended from Cyrus to Darius in the stalling of the construction of the temple. So here now, the Word of God, Ezra 5, verses 1 through 5. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. At the same time came to them Tatnai, governor on this side of the river, and Shethar Boznai, and their companions, and said thus unto them, who hath commanded you to build, this, uh, to build this house and to make up this wall? Then said we unto them after this manner, What are the names of the men that make this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease, till the matter came to Darius. And then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. So here we have a brief record of the happenings in this time, and you have more of it mentioned as we read earlier in Haggai chapter 1, as the Lord had sent these prophets. Now, it's worth us noting the context. There, as we mentioned last time, there was a season when God's temple ceased being built from the time of Cyrus unto Darius. In chapter 4 and verse 5, There were counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that's what's before us here. They are in the midst of not performing the explicit, commanded will of God. There's instruction there, isn't there? They had been, by force, in various ways hindered. They had been told not to. And yet now we see them stirred up to return to their work. But there's more, as Haggai indicates, that it's not only that they ceased building the temple of God, which was the focus of the adversary's contention, they actually returned to building their houses and prioritizing their well-being instead of what they first set upon when they arrived in Jerusalem in seeking first the kingdom of God and His glory. So this comes to us in the text, with much instruction. How does God deal with His people that are often opposed and, as well, are often turning back? What we see is, He raises up His Word. He adds His Word. He blesses His Word. And His Word, which is counted foolishness by the world, is yet sufficient to instruct and to guide and to enliven, to reprove and to correct and in all ways provide for the good of his people. So notice the text before us. You have two prophets mentioned, Haggai and Zechariah. We don't know all that they said, of course, in the course of their ministry, but we do have 
two records of their prophecies in our Bible. Of course, the prophet Haggai, and immediately followed by the prophet Zechariah. These are in the reign of Darius as they're sent. It seems in a period of roughly 15 years, God's people have given up. Now think of that, 15 years. There was the return to Jerusalem. There was the initial setting forth of the work, and there was much rejoicing, and then opposition came. The opposition was sufficient to stall them in their faithful service to God for roughly 15 years. That's a significant portion of time in the life of any individual. If someone lives 75 years, well, 15 years of that is significant to them. If someone lives 90 years, 15 years is significant, and so on. But notice what God does. He sends prophets And so there's this record of their ministry. Haggai and Zechariah prophesied unto the Jews that were there in Judah and Jerusalem. And notice as well, the work is renewed. So the leaders, Zerubbabel, of whom we've heard much already, and Jeshua or Joshua as well, what do they do? They began again to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem. And notice the prophets as well of God Helping them. So the people of God are instructed, guided, encouraged, strengthened by God to set their hand freshly to the work before them. Now the work is again investigated. So you have particular mention of Tatnai and Shetharbosnai and others of them who were governors or rulers. To remember that this massive empire, as any empire has had, had divisions of oversight given to it, similar, not unlike to our country, as we have an overseeing government, and then its states as well have their lesser governments, as our Constitution has been so interpreted. But whatever the case, we have this, that such an expansive empire couldn't possibly be overseen by one man. And so this empire is broken out into different groups and sections and lesser governors are appointed to oversee. And so one such as Tatnai, who's governor on this side, the river, and he comes and inspects. And notice the question, who hath commanded you to build this hall, this house and make up this wall? And so the inspection is there. Now there's something here that is adversarial, but there's also something that's honorable And that the man isn't forcing the stuff, he's investigating. And in fact, what does he do? But he then composes a letter and sends it to the supreme one, Darius the king, and raises the course of matter with him. But what could have been the end of the new effort is rather met with encouragement. Verse 5, The eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease, the matter came to Darius, and then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. And what's more, God's merciful providence to his people not only prevented them from being brought to ceasing the work, but they are bolstered and strengthened in the work even by the king Darius. Now, brethren, there's much in this passage. There's tremendous insight regarding God's providence, what is interpreted often by us as a setback, You can imagine the men who have just freshly started upon their course again, and now here's one coming. Who are you? What are your names? What are you doing? Who's given you this authority? And how quickly they could have succumbed to that sense of, oh no, we've got to give up again. 
But instead, God ordered all of this to the advance of his cause, the good of his people. Now, central to it all, and what we wish to focus on regarding this renewed work is the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. You'll notice they are particularly mentioned as prophets. They are the prophets, Haggai, the prophet, Zechariah, who prophesied. Remember, it's mentioned in earlier books that what are called prophets today were in earlier generations called seers. They foresaw, they were given, as it were, that supernatural gift. And a prophet is one who declares the will of God, sometimes foretelling what's to come to pass, but other times forthtelling the will of God, exhorting God's people unto faith, repentance, and obedience. What we see here is if you were to take out the prophets and their ministries, Haggai and Zechariah, out of the historical record, you would be left with a people wayward who had returned to Jerusalem, who had started well, who had begun well, but so soon as the adversary came, they returned to their own selfish focuses, they lived in these luxurious homes, and yet they were mindless to, think of this, Joshua, who is so commended here, Zerubbabel, so commended here, they were unable to interpret the, pro- or the providence of this famine that had swept by over some time. They were not realizing that though they were earning wages, their money wasn't amassing to anything. And so if you take out the Word of God, you are taking out the central way that God enlivens, reproves, instructs, and guides His people. So remove Haggai and Zechariah, and you have a people wayward, cowering, and misunderstanding the seasons and times in which they live. But you put them in as God brought them to pass, and you have a people who are brought again to focus upon the things of God. What this instructs us in is this, that God enlivens His people onto their work by the ministry of His Word. His Word is ever central to the advance of His cause. His Word is always central when there's any work of any significance whatsoever when God's kingdom advances. This is true personally in our own lives. So you can read through Psalm 119 and you see this over and over again, how the psalmist is expressing his own personal experience. But what's central to that? It's the Word of God. It's central when there's a grand work, as is recorded in Ezra. What's central to that work? It's the Word of God. It's central to the commission of the disciples by Christ. All things, whatsoever I've I've commanded you, go and use that to teach all nations. It's central in times of prosperity and spiritual things. It's central in times of difficulty and small things. Preach the Word. Paul wrote to Timothy, whether it's in season or out of season, make sure the word is going forth. Brethren, it's being held forth to us by this particular example, is if you and I personally, if you and I in our families, if you and I in a congregation, if you and I in the whole of the church of Christ would ever see any advance of the glory of His name, any further establishing of His ordinances and purity, any reforming of the church whatsoever, what must be central is the Word of God. Now consider this in two such points. Firstly, the ministry of God's Word. And secondly, the effect of God's Word. The ministry and the effect of God's Word. As to the first, the ministry of God's Word, it's good for us 
to return to some basics and ask the question, what is God's Word? What is the nature of God's Word? And you'll see it, in some sense, held forth by the fact that Haggai and Zechariah are called prophets. And you'll notice that they're prophesying in the name of the Lord. Now, before we take up more directly from this text, if you turn again to what we read earlier, the book of Haggai in chapter 1, you'll notice what's mentioned of Haggai's ministry. In verse 12, again mentioning Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant of the people, verse 12 it says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. The words, the voice of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet. Notice how this is held forth in verse 13 of chapter 1. Then spake Haggai, the Lord's messenger, in the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. This is instructive to us. It's confirming to us that the Word of God is, by nature, God's Word. Just as surely as you have your words communicating to someone by speech, God has His Word communicating to us in words. This is instructive to us. God's Word includes verbal communication. It's in the words of the Hebrew and portions Aramaic as well as Greek as God has communicated to us in verbs and nouns and adjectives. He's, using, he's used speech to confirm to us and to convey to us all His holy will. In other words, notice something. It's not as if Joshua and Zerubbabel are there in some entranced moment emptying their brain, and then they have the epiphany that comes to them and they say, oh, I've got it. They don't go to get their palms read. They don't go and sort of figure out things on their own. They don't search their hearts. They don't invite others to sit down and have a council. What would God have us do? They receive the Word of God. This is important for us. If our church is to grow in spiritual graces, if our church is to grow in usefulness in God's kingdom, if we as individuals are to grow, it will only come as we give attention to the words of God. Now, the person may come and say, but wait a second, you know, I get it, Haggai and Zechariah, they were prophets. They spoke, boom, and the words that were fine words, the Lord spake by them. We have the Bible, you know, so what's the story there? Well, it's one and the same. Just as you can speak and you can write, both the spoken word and the written word are true transcripts of your thoughts. And so you've seen this in history before, haven't you, where someone desires to leave a memorial to their descendants. And so what do they do? They don't say things, they write it down. And the written record, if preserved, is able to be passed down for generations. Now, brethren, it's not... But this is what we have in the Scriptures. We saw this, for instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. What is it that the Scriptures are? Well, the word Scripture, of course, refers to something written. 
Now, they're called holy scriptures because, as anything written, could be called scripture in the general sense, something written. Yet, notice in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 3, he says to Timothy, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, those scriptures which are of a different sort. They're holy. They're God's word. And notice what he says, verse 16, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. This speaks of its source. The word inspiration has to do with breathing. And so we speak of respiration. And you and I know right away, this has to do with breathing. But the word inspiration has to do with that which is breathed out. Now, of whom is it breathed? It's breathed out of God. Now, you can't speak without breathing out. You have to have breath pass over your vocal cords, out your mouth, and form with your mouth, its tongue, the lips, and all of these things to form sounds. And when they're formed according to the conventions of language, people are able to understand what those words are, and now they understand your thoughts. That's true, you and I can mislead people, but we attribute none of that to God who is only good and faithful. And so what we have in the Holy Scriptures is nothing less than the very Word of God. Notice Peter says something similar in both 2 Peter chapter 1 and in chapter 3. Peter was an eyewitness to the glory of Christ. Not only his incarnation, but you'll remember he particularly mentions that he was an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Christ Jesus. And I imagine that you and I, if given the option, would you have liked to have seen the transfiguration of Christ? Who is there that would say, no, you know, I'll take a pass on that? But what's amazing is that Peter, who saw that, who says in chapter 1, verse 16, that we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it. We heard the voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And sometimes we think, oh, if I had just had that, then I would be able to be maintained and strengthened. If God would just speak to me and say, here's a comfort, here's a promise, here's a blessing, here's your hope, here's my covenant. If I would hear God's voice, oh, then, then I would be blessed. But Peter actually says something different. He says, though this is the voice which came from heaven, he says, verse 19, we, that is, including all of those who have not heard that voice, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation or of any private manufacturing. For the prophecy, that is the prophecy of Scripture, the written record of God's Word, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What do you have in your laps right now? You have the real Word of God. As sure, in fact, Peter says, more sure than the experience of hearing it, you have the written record of God's Word. Now, brethren, this is of tremendous importance for us 
because we see a connection between ourselves in our day and our forefathers in Ezra's record. When the prophets Haggai and Zechariah come and they prophesy and they're declaring the word of God, though it's true they're exercising miraculous and supernatural works, extraordinary gifts being exercised there, we have in the Bible the fruit of an extraordinary ministry of prophets, of apostles, as they by gift recorded the word of God. So we don't look and say, you know, what a special thing it would have been to be in Joshua's day and Zechariah's day. We acknowledge that it's special, but we don't think of it as more special. We don't think of it as more privileged. We actually realize that we have a greater privilege than Haggai's ministry, than Zechariah's ministry, than Joshua or Zerubbabel or any of those of that day had because we have the complete revelation of God recorded in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Something that our forefathers didn't have. And yet God has been privileging us to have the full record. No hesitation in saying that if you were to pull aside Isaiah and say, Isaiah, I wish I were in your shoes. Isaiah would say, I wish I were in your shoes. Why? Because the prophets longed to know the infallible record of all that would come to pass. They looked with longing, searching what times, what seasons, the Spirit of Christ who was at work in them did signify when they spoke beforehand of the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah, get this clear in your mind, would gladly turn from his day to ours that he could have the completed record of the fullness of the revelation of Christ Jesus. Now we emphasize this, lest we mistakenly think, oh, they were encouraged by this extraordinary gift. It's true, the gifts of prophecy and other such things are no longer. But it's untrue that we are without an extraordinary gift. We have the Word of God. And so when we see them stirred up unto all new holy diligence and faithfulness, We don't sit back and say, well, you know what we need is a prophet to arise. Then we'd be inspired. Then we'd be strengthened. No, we have the Word of God. And notice the authority of this Word and its ministry. It's that they prophesy in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. This is why it's so important, the prophets of old, to have said, thus saith the Lord. And as God says, listen, if they speak contrary to my written word, it is because there is no light in them. To the law and to the testimony, to the written record of my word, if they speak contrary to it, whatever else they're saying is misguided. It doesn't bear my authority. But brethren, when it is His word, it comes to us with the authority of God. And so the nature of God's Word and the ministry of His Word, notice within the ministry of His Word, the message of His Word. So the ministry of God's Word, as we've seen its nature, now we give attention to the message. And we don't have much in this chapter, in these verses, but we do have a cue, don't we? Prophets Haggai and Zechariah. We don't have time to go through all of that. You'll remember some months ago, we did make our way through the book of Zechariah, so we can 
turn our thoughts again to that, but there is enough to see something by their ministry. What is the message of God's Word? Now, men are many times in an effort to sort of concentrate their mind as to the essence of what God's Word is, are often coming up with helpful summaries. Brethren, there's, it's hard to think of a better summary of its message than what is recorded in 2 Timothy 3, when it speaks of, it's able to make us wise into salvation, which is by faith in Christ Jesus, and it is sufficient to make the man of God perfect unto every good work. Do you know how our catechism puts it? It speaks of it being the only rule of those things which are to be believed and of the duty which we owe unto God, right? Our faith and our practice. The Word of God holds forth a message of what we're to believe and the things we are to do. And it comes with the authority of God. Now, you can see this as well in the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. What does God's Word do? Well, it corrects and reproves His people. We saw that in Haggai 1. God sends forth His prophet, and brethren, unless you have had the difficult experience of having to reprove someone in the name of God, it's hard to imagine what Haggai faced when he's commissioned to go forth and to reprove the people of God. And notice, though, that it's recorded for us. What is it that Haggai the prophet says? Haggai 1 verse 4, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? There's a firm reproof. Look at your choices. Look at your priorities. You've turned while the priority of God's house is now laying waste. What would happen to this building if you could go back in history, before the walls were fully erected, before the roof was put on it, and you were there at the groundbreaking perhaps, and you see all the excitement and prayer has been issued, and men have been seeking these things, and the cement foundation is poured, and the first rudiments of studs are put up, and then men stop building the house, the building. Well, if 15 years pass, it's going to be overgrown with weeds and cracks in the foundation. Trees are going to have grown up at that time. And though you could still make out the rudiments of the foundation, and perhaps there'd be uh, an odd board that still remains up, yet you would see something that was dilapidated. And now this is God's point through Haggai. Look at what you've done. You've prioritized your houses Your house doesn't sit in waste. Your house is finished. It's beautified. Everything in your house is as it should be. But now look at my house. How is my house? My house sits in waste. Brethren, we have in our culture a temptation to try and make a connection here. Men often prioritize their own instead of God's. That's what's going on here, and God's Word reproves that. It corrects it. It doesn't come with bitter invective, but it does come with sound and searching reproof. However, that's not all God's Word does. It also ministers encouragement. We saw that, I trust, when we read in Haggai chapter 1, 
And notice that blessed word that is given in verse 13 as the Lord's messenger speaks in the Lord's message unto the people saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. And so God reproves His people, but He also comforts His people. What a message that is. That we know when God comes with reproof to us as His children, He doesn't leave us to sort of nurse our own wounds. He actually opens the balm of Gilead and He applies it unto us and says, Listen, I'm with you. It's similar to a father who sees something errant in his child, reproves the child, and now takes the child by the hand and says, I'm with you and I'm going to help you through this. That's the ministry that comes to us by His Word. Now, brethren, notice the order here. There's reproof followed by encouragement. It's not the only order. There are times when God comes with encouragement before reproof. But we'll notice something, that those two go together. And in our culture, and when we say that we don't just mean our generation in America, in the Midwest, we mean in the evangelical church, there's a sense to resent. You know, who are you to talk to me? And though we wouldn't say it in those words to God, yet in our practice, we get reproved and we become uneasy. And so immediately we're like, well, I've got to skip past that. But notice this. The full comfort that comes, the wholesome renewal that comes, is begun with a word of reproof. That's a necessary message of God's Word to His people. You see this, of course, don't you? In 2 Timothy, there in chapter 3, as well as in verse 4. and in Chapter 4. And so notice the Word of God is mentioned in its nature, as we saw. But it's useful. For what? It's profitable for teaching, that's doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And what is Timothy to do? Chapter 4 and verse 2, he's to preach the Word. And what's he to do in preaching? He's to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. The Word of God in its ministry in the Old and New Testaments has a word of reproof and a word of exhortation, a word of correction and a word of encouragement. And so you see something of the message here. It encourages and comforts as well as reproves and corrects. But it also holds forth more than just our guide unto good works. It does do that. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and at verse 17. That the man of God may be perfect or complete, mature, thoroughly or thoroughly or perfectly and completely furnished unto every good work. The Word of God is our only sufficient guide unto all and every good work. Now we ought to note something. What that means is if someone comes to us, whether bearing the authority of the Pope or bearing the authority of the best-selling new book or bearing their own authority of their own personal study and they're guiding us into actions and works that are without the warrant of God, we have no need of it. We have absolutely zero need of anything people come and bear to us and say, you need this if you're going to be a good, a faithful, a mature Christian. Because we stand sufficiently provided 
by the Word of God. But notice this word, as it guides us into what's to be done. His Word also holds forth the true and lasting hope of salvation by grace. It's implicit in the very thing they're supposed to be building. What are they supposed to be building? The temple of God. The dwelling place of God where the sacrifices would be offered, where the priesthood would be manifest. Think of this for a moment. In their turning away from the work to which God had called them, they actually decreased the clarity of witness of the gospel. By turning aside from God's commission, they actually hindered their own soul's benefit in what would be proclaimed by the temple and the ministry therein. You can see it also in the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. We've seen some of these things from Haggai. Notice now Zechariah. And oh, what a blessed word it is when you come to Zechariah and chapter 13. Much of the same things in many ways held forth in Zechariah. But listen to this in verse 1 of chapter 13. In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. God opens, as it were, the understanding of His people. There's a fountain for cleansing from sin. Notice the true and lasting hope. It's mentioned in chapter 14, the last two verses. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. And in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. The blessings of the Gospel being, bringing forth the fruit of holiness. This is the point. The Word of God holds forth our duty with clarity. It also holds forth with clarity the good news of salvation by Christ Jesus. This is the message. And so you can realize, without the ministry of the Word, we're liable to drift away from our duty, but we're also liable to neglect the clarity of the Gospel. You take the Word of God away, and the law will fade. Not only the law, the Gospel will fade. And it will be replaced by all manner of nonsense, as we see even in our own day. Now secondly, Notice, having seen something of the ministry of God's Word, the effect of God's Word. What comes as God blesses the ministry of His Word? So quickly, in summary fashion, the prophets are mentioned that prophesied unto the Jews in the name of the God of Israel, unto them, that is, unto the Jews. And what's the next word? Then rose up Zerubbabel. There's action that follows. There's work that is renewed. Joshua joins with him, but it's not just Zerubbabel and Joshua. It's also with them the prophets of God helping them. And as we saw in Haggai, it's the people that are with them. The Word of God comes, and it's blessed by God with efficacy, with power, and it sets the people now with a mind to work. 
The Lord uses His Word as that instrument, as that means, to enliven His people unto all diligence in faith and obedience. The work had ceased, but so soon as God blesses His Word, the work renews with renewed vigor and commitment and strength. Brethren, this is the reason that Paul among other things, exhorts Timothy to preach the Word in season, out of season. Because it's the Word only that the Lord blesses to advance His cause and His people. There is a wondrous irony, a wondrous confusion, a mystery to us in many ways when so-called Christians testify they desire the experience of God to meditate upon His grace Therefore, we're going to lessen His Word and we're going to increase ceremony. It's absolutely, not only without biblical warrant, it is to the destruction of all sound faith and obedience. And when churches up with the ceremonies and decrease God's Word, you know from the beginning what the end will look like, except God renews His Word to them. Brethren, we must maintain the centrality of God's Word, not as a theoretical doctrine and commitment, but likewise because of its practical impact. If ever we're to grow, if ever we're to mature, if ever the church is to prosper and advance, it will only be as God maintains and blesses His Word to us. It's not that we're archaic. It's not that we're out of touch with the present needs of a culture and generation. It's that we see the present needs of our culture and generation. It's that we're in touch with the very fact of our culture and our day. And we're saying what the world needs of our day, what the church needs in our day, is more of God's Word, not less. It's more of God's Word, not less. When you see in your own life, this by experience, the drifting from God's Word, it may take some time, but eventually what happens is dry. And you sit there and you wonder and you pray about it, you think about it, you talk to others, And sure enough, what happens? You realize the Word of God has become smaller in your life. This doesn't mean that we mechanically read God's Word and all of a sudden we mechanically become stronger and healthier and whatever else. We realize, even as Paul says to the Thessalonians, that the Word of God must come by the power and ministry of the Spirit. But brethren, realize that these two are brought together. In other words, the Spirit doesn't work without using the Word. Oh, He could, but His ordinary way is to use the Word of God. This is why Paul says, listen, you're to preach the Word. When seasons are difficult and bad and no one's coming, when it seems like numbers are being lessened every week and month and year, what are you to do, Timothy? Or not to sort of jump strategy and say, what are we going to do? You're to maintain preaching the Word. And when then all of a sudden the Lord adds blessings and people are coming, we don't then say, look at all these things we're doing. Let's start this new thing and that new thing. Let's get a 
child's program to get all of these toys and uh, plays and other such things. No. We look at the increase. We bless God and we maintain preaching the Word. The Word must always in every season, in every circumstance, be central because it is that which the Lord uses to bless His people. If we diminish the Word, by consequence, what we're saying is we don't care to see God's people strengthened. It renews His people. It also prepares for struggle. Notice that so soon as they set their work again, at the same time came to them Tatnai and Shitharbaznai, their companions, and they raised the question. Now, who knows how they would have responded had they gone so without the warrant, without the guidance, without the enlivening of God's Word. But now they stand, as it were, saying, we will not stop. We will press on. It's astounding that someone like Pastor John MacArthur came under scrutiny when he withstood the unlawful injunction of our nation to stop gathering. And brethren, what we mean by that is this. He came under scrutiny by church, by Christians. Christians were calling him mindless. Christians were calling him careless. Christians were saying you ought to stop. If you loved God, you'd stop. Notice, these men work. The question is asked, what are you, who gave you this permission? And it says, verse 5, the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. They would press on. They would keep on God's work. This is why the church capitulated massively in the past two years. Shut down worship and said, well, the government told us. The government told the church to do something that is not in the government's power to tell the church. Stop gathering to worship God? Who has that authority? No earthly man. No civil government. No president. No Congress. No Supreme Court. No police. No one has that authority. Because the public worship of God is Christ's call. It's His will. Now, people can force us to not come, as we've mentioned. There's a world of difference between someone saying, you know what the CDC says, you shouldn't meet together. The government says it's unlawful to gather. They can do that all day, but that's different than a tank being placed in front of your meeting place and saying you can't come. That's different than the door being watched by policemen. That's different than you being gathered up and imprisoned. Brethren, the people of God here Who gave you this right? And by their works, they answer, God gave us this right. The God of heaven and earth has called us to build His house. We will build His house. Now you can arrest us. You can put knives to us. You can kill us. It's all. What kind of boldness does that exude? It's a boldness that many today know nothing of. But it's the boldness that comes by a firm persuasion of the Word of God. This is what was said by the apostles. You know, listen, 
you can command us not to go and preach, but we ought to obey God rather than men. We will obey God. How will you be able to say that unless you know what God has commanded? How will you be able to answer the abuse of authority, whether it's from the government, whether it's from the church, whether it's from any other sphere of the world? They come with the law. They come and say, look, statute such and such, and this bill says you can't do it. And we say, listen, I know what the law of this land says, but there is a higher law that is over this law that says, you know what, put me in prison if you're going to. Arrest me, confiscate my goods, take away all of my civil rights and my liberties and so on. Whatever you do, but I must answer to God. We will not come down. We will not give up what God has charged us to do. Why? Because we disrespect God. Law? No. We wish to be the most compliant. We wish to be the most law-abiding citizens of this nation, of this state, of this city. But you have no right to interfere with the command and law of God. You have your prerogative. Force us. You can do these things if you want. But we will not capitulate. We will not compromise. Brethren, that kind of boldness only comes by the Lord blessing His Word to His people. It maintains their focus. They don't waver from the call upon them. And what's astounding to us is this, that as we'll see, as you can read ahead, Tatnai writes to uh, King Darius and actually counsels a very wise course, as we'll see, and say search ought to be made to see, you know, they've appealed and said Cyrus made a decree, you know, search and find out what's been recorded and so on. Darius does that. And what does he do? Lo and behold, he finds the decree. And now he adds his own decree to say, furnish them with whatever they need. That doesn't happen without men standing for the rights of God. Our nation loves to talk about civil rights. And we're grateful, sincerely grateful, for the rights and privileges of citizenship in this world. Paul, when he was mishandled, he had no hesitation in saying, listen, I appeal to Caesar. He knew his rights. You know, I'm a Roman citizen. You've confiscated, you've, you've abducted me, you've taken me into imprisonment without any right. And then the Jailer realizes this is a big problem. We've taken a man who's a Roman and that without warrant. We have no hesitation to acknowledge the great blessings of these rights. But we also have no hesitation to say there are bigger rights. Not that belong to us, but that belong to God. God has rights. In fact, He's the only one who has the highest right to say He has rights. He is God. His glory is what matters. His prerogative is what matters. And it's the Christian, only the Christian, who has been renewed by the Spirit of God that sees the world is messed up. The world clamors. And let's be clear, brethren, it's not just the left that is messed up. The right is messed up. The political scene in our world is messed up because the whole focus is upon me. My rights, what I get, what I want, 
what the Constitution provides me. Now, we have no hesitation in saying there are things that need to be asserted with that. But where is the group that's saying, fundamentally, what we're concerned about is the right of God. That God deserves honor. The psalmist has hesitation in this, right? Psalm 2. What does the psalmist say to the kings of the earth? He says, listen, you who are rulers over nations, as rulers, you ought to humble yourselves and kiss the Son, lest you perish when His wrath is kindled but a little. Brethren, we ought to give thanks not just for what the Word of God is, but for what the Word of God does. It instills courage because we hear the voice of God. We hear the voice of the true shepherd. This is the way, walk ye therein. We say, but wait, you know, there's difficulty. There's this obstacle, there's that obstacle, there's that difficulty, this difficulty, that trial, this pain, this agony, all these things. And he says, yeah, I know it, so follow me. Christ says, take my yoke upon me, upon you. He doesn't say, you know, yep, that's the path, go through it. We actually sing this in Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. What do we say? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Well, because I'm bold, I'm strong, I'm courageous. No, because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they come for me. Did you hear when Paul wrote to Timothy? how he rattles off, almost mindlessly, the persecutions, the sorrows, the afflictions that greeted him here, there, and everywhere he went. He rattles that off. And he actually adds what probably awakens fear in us, yea, and all that who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And all of a sudden we see something. The Word of God that guides us will bring us unto difficulties and trials and at times even full-blown persecution. But we have the confidence that as we're following God by His Word, He will never leave us nor forsake us and will be with us in the trials. And so His Word is a comfort to us. We sang of this in God's providence as we're singing through both Psalm 56 and Psalm 57 are the psalmist pleading with God to remember His mercies as they're suffering and surrounded by tormentors. Brethren, the sufferings of the righteous who follow God is nothing new. It is as old as Cain killing Abel. And it is as fresh today whether it's by unlawful commandments or abuse or other such things. And so we ought to give thanks that God's Word comes to guide us, but also to comfort us. Here's a cause, an explanation as to why there's so little diligence in the things of God this day. Because there's so little attention to His Word. You can read books on how to shape your ministry and how to improve your church and all these things. And it's all these strategies, perhaps some things helpful and wise and tidbits here and there. But what's wanting is a robust statement. Here's the strategy. You want the strategy? Let me give it to you. Preach the Word of God. That's your strategy. That's what you need. You want your church to grow? God, but let me tell you, 
Is it a difficult time? Let me tell you your strategy. Preach the Word of God. Is it a good time, a rejoicing time? Let me tell you your strategy. Preach the Word of God. That's the strategy. That's God's commission. That's His call to us. We have need to hold fast to His Word. And as we do, we realize that though there are seasons of small things, and though there are seasons when God's people turn aside, if ever and whenever He will renew His cause, it will be as He blesses His We need to be studying the Scriptures as the Bereans who heard the ministry of Paul and Silas and then they searched the Scriptures to see that these things were so. But we should say this as well in light of what Ezra 5 tells us. We need to open ourselves to be searched by God's Word. What's that mean? It means when we're reading God's Word, we're asking God, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We don't come just to fill our minds. We come knowing this is God's Word, asking Him to search us. And ever doing so, blessing His name, that His Word holds forth Christ Jesus. The very central message of the temple, the promise of Zechariah chapter 13, the promise of Isaiah 53, the substance of what John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, The very thing that Christ says, I was dead, but I'm alive. Behold, I live forevermore. The Word of God, which will call us to difficulties, searches us, but it also satisfies us with Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me for prayer?